Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Liz, there is one more scene that I have to do with you and Hildred, yep. but we can do that. Not necessarily. <laughs> oh, oh, yes, there is. Just because everyone's so horny doesn't mean you need to help them. Well, we need be to be horny. We need, uh, the, I mean, it may or may not be horny. We'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, horny's in the eye that, of the beholder. Yeah, horny's in the eye the of the beholder. Horny. The beholder is extremely horny. Here's what happens. Gable has the sword in their in their shoulder socket. Metatron dives from such a height that seems impossible and a speed that is terrifying. Tiberius thinks that that can't possibly hit in any sort of measurable way because at that speed accuracy is nearly impossible so he almost doesn't feel it when the tip of the sword which is smaller than he even thought hits him right next to the sternum in between two ribs straight through next to his heart and keeps on going through and Gable, still holding the hilt, jumps off of Metatron and continues the throw down to the ground, pinning him to the ground as if he were javelined or speared down from the heavens themselves and lands neatly at his head face to face. So you're, you're taking him into the ground is what yes. I'm hearing here? Yeah. He's not split in half yet. So if he is pinned into the ground, the ground beneath you right now are sheets of feather weave uh, that are held to light to catch uh, any competitors should they be, you know, dismounted from their griffins. Yes. And the feather Um, weave begins to rise because it is all catching on fire. Oh, shit. Oh my god, okay. The entire ground is catching on fire, surrounding him. He can see it, but he can't move. Ooh. So he sees a vision of the world around himself, an endless field of flames, and Gable above him, 
with a sword buried in his chest. He's in shock, too much shock to even feel pain at this moment. He's still alive, though, alive enough to hear what Gable says. Gable grabs him by the chin and props his head up so he can look at the audience, which I assume is wrapped in terrified attention because people so very rarely actually die at this event and holds his head up to their face so they can whisper in his ear when you killed him you were trying to protect your family name weren't you look around it's not just the last time you will see your life your beautiful unique life fade away as we speak throughout this entire city voices are sharing terrible secrets of a family that fell apart and a brother who stole a life that wasn't his doors are closing to the young blood family coffers are being emptied the things that you held most dear the things that you killed over are falling from your grasp It almost makes me want to keep you alive long enough to see it. Almost. Fucking dope. Yes! Cool. Certified fresh. (laughs) And then Gable pushes the blade all the way down to the hilt in his chest. And then he catches on fire. Fuck yes! Nice. Hell yeah. Gold flames. Gold flames, which are like wrapped in the feather weave around you, obviously making the feather weave heat up, causing you to rise further and further into the air as you are vanquishing this opponent. From Tiberius's perspective, we can see that he does, in fact, see the audience around him, but he sees them warped by these flames. Human faces and voices are contorted by the heat that is consuming his body, not just his body, his very soul. He feels himself burn away and fades into that place between life and death, that cold, black place where the cutting stone lives, that place where he left his brother to die. From Tiberius's perspective, the flames stay as the world disappears, as time stops, and he can see around him the hooded faces of the cutting stone, stones in their hands as they approach him. They raise themselves and snap. Tiberius Youngblood is no more on this plane or any plane. He has been erased from being. The harshest fate that an avenging angel, an angel of justice, can bestow.
Uh, Fuck that guy. <laughs> Fuck that guy. Can I can I do a little insert here? I don't know how. People yes, will. please. Um, I think in that as because Jonnet has been one way or another so transfixed on Tiberius. I think as he's walking back from the sort of the fairgrounds to the main city, he's very calm. He's he feels like his part of this has been done, and then all of a sudden, for like a blip. His eye just widens completely, and then he gets a light into the a sight into the divine universe, and he sees all the tendrils and the vectors that are normally like connecting through whatever he's focused on, and um, mm-hmm. he sees the light that was the vector for Tiberius just blip out of existence uh, in that moment, and then his eye shuts and he's back, and. In that, Jonnet knows exactly what's happened. Um, and so he just kind of like, uh, gives, he maybe says to himself like, uh, way to go, Gable. We can't be afraid of what we don't know. And so he takes that and he starts maybe on a little bit of a hop back to uh, the city. Aw, bud. We return to the arena where the sand that has been spilled into the air from every single vessel is all black. The sand like slowly settles as the feather weave and the gold flames disappear. Uh, It begins to restore itself to its normal position. And around the arena from every place imaginable, ravens land creating a circle around this place. The audience is silent, terrified at what they have seen. No human being should have been able to survive a dive like that. It shouldn't be possible to cut through the clever spells of the sorcerer who put this competition together. Even with a vicious overkill blow, an opponent would be mortally wounded only barely. Yet here we see someone run completely through. Run through with a large flaming sword. They saw Gable stand amongst the flames, flames that held themselves on featherweave, however briefly. They see the burnt ring around Tiberius Youngblood, the ring around Gable, where the featherweave has changed color from its normal ivory white to a dark crimson blood red. And they see the ravens watching. And they know that somehow, for some reason, this man's death was partially the broker's doing. And then the horns sound. Signaling the end of the joust and the victory of Hildred Gastar. What was Hildred just like? Yeah, Hildred is incredibly thing. confused. Like they, they, she, she has stopped like her, her, her building speed as this happened, and she just looks down at you. Um, it's her face is 
too far away for a normal person to be able to make it out. But Gable, you are an angel and you're more connected to the truth of your being than you are in normal moments. You can see there's fear in her eyes, tinted with a hungry admiration. Gable is now standing over a pile of ashes surrounded by an awestruck crowd. Those who are supporting the summer court are clearly overwhelmed with joy at the victory by Hildred Gastar. Uh, one thing that Gable did not get out of the rules and, and really nobody in the party got out of the rules is that the season that wins the Ayer Piora Golden Feather also represents a civic victory. Their neighborhood is going to be awarded a cash prize oh dang and therefore the the summer is going to be getting a higher share of taxes allocated to different civic needs of that portion of the city that's great uh, we're really we did not do a lot of good things for the broker did we? <laughs> uh, you're i mean the broker will probably be fine and uh, frankly, the broker's district will probably be fine as well. Uh -huh. um, one thing about Hildred representing the summer district, the summer district is kind of a poorer district that mm -hmm. never really shows well in this competition. So that's why most people in the summer side are overwhelmed uh, with joy. Mm -hmm. Everyone else is kind of horrified at what they've just seen. Mm -hmm. They saw someone stabbed through the chest with enough force to burst all of the protections around that person, presumably, because they don't actually know what went on that made the spell that was protecting Tiberius fail. Also, he burned alive to dust. Yeah, how is his part of the stadium doing right now uh so the winter court and like i really feel everyone except for the summer court is kind of in shock there might be a few people who are moved to boo or or something of that nature but for the most part it's just people can't believe what's going on i think you see officials kind of moving very quickly mm -hmm. across the feather weave tarp that you are now standing on towards you okay um, um not great <laughs> but i have created a diversion if you recall mm -hmm. i sent it, it was wendell and nodos yes yes they're over in the winter court okay that's right and they are set there to create a distraction if i need to make a getaway do i need to make a getaway is what i'm asking you um this is probably a judgment call specifically for gable uh liz i didn't think we would need dice for this side oh, portion. oh no i'm not gonna it's them doing it yeah does wendell need to roll <laughs> wow it's hard to tell i i think what one of the things that has caused kind of a hushed awe to fall over the crowd is not simply just that tiberius was struck down and burned away but as that happened, several ravens 
landed around the stadium, signaling to many that this death is not simply an accident of the sport, but a deliberate thing caused by the broker. Okay. So you can see that moving over, some of these people are wearing the colors of your team, and some of them are just Iropura officials generally. I think I got to go. There is very few situations where something like this will happen where this conversation is going to go peacefully. So mm. as far as I know, Travis and Jonet have figured it all out. I believe we have enough people in the Uhuru in the stadium where if we sounded the alarm, we could get back to the Uhuru pretty quickly without being noticed. So I think it's time to go. Yeah. Where's Metatron right now? I jumped off him. He flew up. I think he's making he's circles. Circling. Okay. He's making circles like pretty close to the audience. So they can't really see at any given time. I'm happy to grab on and, are, and go. Are, are you going to start to signal to Metatron then yes. for a pickup? I like this. I, I think as you start signaling to get picked up by Metatron, you can see one of the people who is in the broker's colors is kind of like looking at you, waving you off, waving you not to do that. I got to um, go. <laughs> okay. Uh, so I like. I, I think this person is going to scramble over to you as quickly as they can. Gable's got an arm out waiting for the the harness to come around. Wait, please, Mr. Gable, you have 30 please. Seconds. You have 30 seconds. You're not going to be in trouble. Please, please. The broker the broker will, will, will smooth all of this over. All of it. Just... We need you to stay. Why? It gets worse if you go. Why? It gets so much. You might not be allowed back in Bujanith. That's fine. No, that's not fine. That could never possibly be fine. I, I know that you've gone through all this and you, you think it's very important, but but trust me, being excommunicated from Bujanith is a very big deal. A very, very big deal. Tell me why. Explain <sighs> to me very, very, very quickly. Where else were you going to sell these things? Where else in the world oh, were you going to sell these things? None of us will. Exactly. Shit. Mr. Gable, I I know that you have gone through a lot. I need you to just trust in the legal system right now. And saying that to a Corsair is crazy, but I need you to stay put. This is all part of the plan. If you're lying to me, you're dead. They nod grimly, if hesitantly. Okay. Metatron circles around Gable grabs onto the loose harness, swings up, and instructs Metatron to, like, perch or, like, hover on a flagpole pretty far away, far away enough to not be, like, stabbed by For sure. by things, but still in it, upset about it. Okay. Got on the bird, and Metatron <laughs> flew to a flagpole. Great, and this person is going to cross off of this feather weave now make their way over to your pole and slowly like like ascend the ladders and stairs and whatnot super unnecessary (laughs) i assure you it's all necessary (laughs) you need to come with me you need to come with me down an arm and pulls them up Uh, i am your lawyer and you need to come with me. me it's all fine everything is fine what's your name I Inigo. Okay. And I need you to come down with me. 
You're going to have a short interview with the judges. We're going to smooth everything over. Smooth everything over? Yes, yes. And you're going to appear on that podium. And everyone, it's in everyone's best interest that we pretend everything is fine. And that nothing bad happened. Because that's how it works. The broker has just issued a threat to both the Red Feather Syndicate uh-huh. and possibly the Youngblood family. Absolutely, yes. Both of those institutions need to pretend like nothing bad happened. Because if something bad happened, then they have to fight the broker. And no one wants to fight the broker. So instead, we're all going to pretend this is fine and stab each other in the back 10,000 different ways over a very long, protracted period of time, even past when everybody is dead and nobody remembers why this was a problem in the first place. Are you okay? This is my job, so I am not okay. Okay. But part of this is going to be you will be asked questions by the judges of this competition. They will be very mad. They are powerless to do anything to you. And at the end of this, you need to be standing on that second place podium like nothing happened. Gable is so upset right now. (laughs) This is civilization, sir. This is how these conflicts bore out. That was extremely rude. Also, I respect you. You're going to do the talking for me. Yes, most of it. Uh, There will be questions that I can't answer about the spells that you used in the competition. As far as they know, there were no spells. Okay, but that's clearly not true. It was an accident. I know it was an accident. I know that. But there's no body. A man is dust now. That must be his own charms. Okay. I'm just, I'm going to, I'll let you talk it through. Just, you didn't use any substances or anything on on your blade or or on your person to cast that spell? I do not believe so. Okay. Okay. Yes, you will have the broker's support and I will act as as your voice in many matters. We have to make this extremely quick. Believe me, no one wants this to be quicker than I do. Okay. Uh, So there is a quick cut to a table full of judges. These are exactly the sort of people that you expect. Severe-faced people with graying hair and wrinkled faces that have grown fat off of the wealth of many different societies. And really, the only thing that gives them joy is getting extremely particular about how people fly big birds. There is a panel sitting in front of you that has been in front of you for the last several minutes, bringing up different objections about your conduct during the joust, bringing up questions about exactly how the spells could have failed and whether or not they should consider a criminal like you to be worthy of the podium in the first place. Hildred is in this room as well. Also, your co-competitor, Ratu Key, is here as well. They're fluctuating between this is all Gable's fault to this is a grand conspiracy to some of them alluding in all but direct words that the broker is responsible for this and cannot be allowed to just act in this way to seize the competition for his chosen champions. But the conversation eventually swings to you. Mr. Gable... I have never seen in all my years uh, presiding over different competitions dueling magic such as yours without the aid of alchemical equipments and and certainly illegal uh, 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 unctions and, and potions. 
Could you present to us the weapon that you use to strike the killing blow? Uh, they look around the room for shock and gasps as once again, and this happened every time somebody said that there was a killing blow. Killing, oh, gracious. Gable has, hasn't sheathed it this mm-hmm. entire time. It's just been out. <laughs> Either presented like a, holding it like a staff or uh, across their their lap. There's no reason not to. Gable takes the sword and basically just tosses it down as if it were a deer carcass, as if it means nothing. I want to know, how does it land on the ground? Because, like, we don't know much about the properties of your sword yet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there any other unusual properties apart from the fact that it's extremely large and fairly easy for you to wield? It doesn't land right. It, for something that big, it should land like really hard, really heavy. It lands like a fencing foil. Oh, yeah. There's only a light clatter that accompanies the landing. I love that. Mm-hmm. With that, I, I think there are some competition officials and competition sorcerers that, that move over to the blade and attempt to pick it up. Mm-hmm. When someone who is not you attempts to hold your sword and wield it. What happens? It's not that it's too heavy because that's way too, like, Molnir. Mm-hmm. I think what happens is that it feels like the end of a battery. Ooh. Like, a little bit buzzy, a little bit wrong, but still very flimsy and weird. It feels like a plaything, honestly. Interesting. Ooh. Like, yeah, it, it feels like kind of insubstantial and not real. Yeah, because the way... I got a lot of these questions at Gen Con, so I've had time to think about it. The sword itself became more tangible the longer Gable spent on Earth or on land. Wow. Yeah, because that makes sense. Like when during the fall, it wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Right? That's and true. the same thing with the wings. The wings aren't necessarily there. Out of necessity, it's still part of them, but because it makes more sense and the way that their body has become more solid so too has this part of their body in different ways and over time Gable's been able to separate the material part of it from the actual intentional magical part of it uh, so the sorcerers give it a look. Like, I, I think, you know, one, one of the first competition officials that picks up the blade, like, they, they make a strange face as it's uh, easier to pick up than they anticipate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think that buzzy feeling, like, it's got, if anybody has ever used one of those shock pads for, like, uh, muscle therapy or whatnot, like, it's got that effect where your muscles pulse in a weird way and it makes it very hard to hold. And the sword clatters gently to the ground once more. As the sorcerers begin to look it over, they mumble different curious sounds. Uh, I think the the official competition sorcerer does not speak whatever the common tongue is. And through interpreters, uh, they announce, it's simply steel, nothing more. This causes the judges to stand up arguing. Some of them, you can tell, are judges that are clearly in the broker's employ, like who throughout the entire thing have been going, this is a simple accident. Anyone who could fall off of their bird onto the feather weave might turn to dust. A kangaroo court indeed. We simply don't know enough about feather weave and its long-term effects on health. (laughs) The others who, who 
are not are insisting that this sorcerer must also be in the broker's employ. There's simply no way that a sword could simply be steel. You are to tell me that you somehow produced flames through willpower or personal magics? I have something to admit. The room falls silent and leans forward curiously. Your lawyer looks nervous. I placed a cleaning spell on it. It's a little bit of ego, I apologize, but I never liked the look. I tried to make it more burnished, and I suppose that may have created some sort of chemical reaction. Pardon me for my my silly whims, I suppose. The very nerve! How dare you expect me to believe that a cleaning spell summons fires which consume a human soul and reduce it to ask? Pish posh! Pish posh! I say, I say! Uh, at this point, your lawyer steps forward. I believe the official court sorcerers have said that the blade is merely steel and there have been no alchemical substances found on my client or anyone in that arena save Mr. Youngblood, whose body could not be investigated. Perhaps there were spells at play, but certainly none more significant than the regular dueling spell that my client might have placed on their blade, but we have no idea what spells or unctions Mr. Youngblood might have smuggled into the arena. An illegal substance could have interacted with Mr. Gable's magics in any conceivable way. At this, there is more grandstanding from judges on either side, but it's getting very close. I, I think there are nervous competition officials who have been poking their heads into the room uh, every couple of minutes as the crowd outside grows more and more ravenous for a winner to be officially crowned. And when it becomes clear, well, actually, I should pull Luminary for this, shouldn't I? I mean, if you want. <laughs> you want... Like a game. I mean, I guess. For the listeners at home, a lot of these Hildred interactions, me and James do by ourselves because it's weird to do romance scenes while two other people just sit there and watch. <laughs> or look at their phones. Look at their, mostly look at their phones. The children. Oh, okay. Uh, the children signify uh, new beginnings, new opportunities, and responsibility which is an interesting interaction with the end of this judging session. I, I think ultimately what is called for is new, more specific language around dueling magic and inspections for each uh, contestant who enters the champion stage for the final joust to make sure that there are no alchemical uh, substances that might interact badly with existing spells that protect competitors and uh, any foreign dueling magics that, that have not been assessed. And in fact, there is one judge who is pushing very strongly for all dueling spells to be performed prior to the competition for the judging staff. What a smart idea. Mm-hmm. Like uh, a bureaucratic change. Exactly. Uh, I, so I think that's what it is. And you are ushered out of the room. The attorney that you are working with gives you a nod. Thank you for sitting through that. There's just one more portion. This is ceremonial, and then this you'll be is free. not fast. This is as fast as it goes. Can you send a message? Yes, of course. Wendell and Nodos, they are parts of my crew. They're in the stadium. Please tell them to get ready. 
okay. They say dripping with anger and sarcasm as they move out uh, as your attorney. Of course, they will not reveal that information to anyone except for the requested parties. It's just to tell everyone to like start getting towards the ship. He has no idea what sure. that means. And he's <laughs> like, I could be setting off a chain of murders. Great. Excellent. Good. Love this. Love today. Um <laughs> Hey heroes, it's James, your Game Master, and welcome to the mid-roll. Folks, this is a very special mid-roll because it is the last mid-roll for our Bujaneeth arc. An arc of this campaign that I literally thought was going to bike us and we would be here for at least a year. And it definitely had some staying power. But I am so proud of everything that we've done. I want to thank all of you for listening to us, interacting with us, being a part of this podcast. One of the things that I love about role-playing games is they are a collaboration. And because I get to do this as an actual play, my collaboration isn't just with the people at the table, even though they do happen to be the most important people. It's with all of you. Feeding off the excitement that I saw in responses to the show helped me figure out what people were interested in seeing. They helped me stage and shape events. And I think it made the show so much better. I'm so glad to have your attention and enthusiasm and care. A huge thanks especially to the fan artists, fan fiction writers, and fan animators in our audience who made incredible pictures, told unique stories, and created original characters, and used their art to bring some of the jokes that we made to life. Making this podcast is a true joy. And it's a joy that I share with everybody at my table and all of you. Though I suppose I should also point out that this is our show and you are not allowed to make demands of us. And continuing to listen to this show is a binding agreement that you understand that. I've watched a lot of fandoms and I figured it would be prudent to put that message in there just in case. But y'all are great. Yesterday, the World Builders end of year drive wrapped up. And thanks in part to the generosity of the campaign community, we've got some pretty cool things headed our way. One of the first things we unlocked through our drive is an extension of Campaign Courier's Call. In case you missed the previous mid-rolls, Courier's Call is going to be an all-ages spin-off for Campaign. And after our Christmas break, the first three episodes of January are going to be Campaign Courier's Call. After that, we will resume our main campaign. This is giving an opportunity for all of our performers to enjoy a nice holiday break. And it allows you to see a different corner of Sphere. But this charity drive helped us make three additional episodes of Courier's Call that are going to air on their own feed. So if you like what you hear at Courier's Call, be happy because more is going to be on the way. And if you like that, please let us know because I would love to make more if people are interested in helping us do that. Also, I mentioned a Christmas break. This is the first year where Campaign and OneShot are taking holidays off, but I couldn't help myself, and you're going to get a special treat come Christmas Day. And it will include voice work by one of my favorite performers from one of my favorite shows who offered to guest on the podcast, and I am so, so excited to bring it to you. 
we don't have a Dear Uhuru this week because we actually ran out of them. Uh, so instead, at the end of the show, I'm just going to give you a couple interesting narrative tidbits and director's notes because I figure it'll be a fun way to end the show. You'll be able to think about things. I, I think a, probably a better format for those kind of notes is like a conversation or a stream or something like we've done in the past. Uh, but I wanted to leave you with something because the Dear Uhuru is not there for you. Now, before we get back to the episode, I want to take a quick moment and thank our backers on Patreon. Wesley Farber, thank you so much. Mike DeJong, thank you. Grant Leven, thank you very much. John S. Troutman, thank you so much. You should check out some of John's comics. They're pretty rad. Valerie Perham, thank you. Eliza Thor, thank you so much. Lisa Nicole Tomlinson, thank you very much. Nathaniel Knight, ooh, what a great name. Keevan Arthur Edifug, thank you so much. And also let me know if I mispronounced that, because I feel like I did. Turner Konigsberg, thank you so much and thank you for the pronunciation guide that uh, alleviated a lot of my anxiety. And Matthew Bedart, thank you so much. Thanks again to everyone who supports us on Patreon. These shows that you love would not be possible without your support. If you like what you hear, please head over to patreon.com slash one-shot podcast and become a backer. That support helps the artists behind this show live prosperously, and it makes the show better. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now, with all of that out of the way, let's get back in the sky. So you are ushered out back into the stadium. The world inside the judges' quarters and the actual stadium itself is wildly different. You're hit by a wave of sound. There is a rain of flowers and petals from all directions. You can see that perhaps there might be a few diehard members of each court that are salty about how the competition actually shook out. However, the majority of people here are simply fans. They are simply uh, residents of Bujanith who love to watch the Ayurpura and the Joust in particular. And this year was a spectacle, if a quick one. Mm. The center of the arena, like the Featherweave, has been peeled away and there is an elevated platform now where the first, second, and normally fourth place contestants would be positioned. Uh, as you ascend the stairs, uh, the chanting gets louder and louder. Uh, you can see the autumn contingent is full of people waving banners that are both official and, of course, bootleg. Nasty. <laughs> celebrating your victory as you are headed up. Hildred is walking in front of you. Um she wasn't able to communicate with you much during the judge room proceedings, but 
th- this is, I think, the first time that you've gotten to have any real interaction as you were approaching these stands. And very quickly, it, it turned into a thing where you would not be able to talk to each other because it's simply too loud. I want to know what happens. I think Gable is extremely anxious about this because so now Hildred's seen kind of all sides of this. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the good parts of angelic divine power and the truly terrible parts of it and this being one of the first times they've kind of really opened themselves up to this vulnerability this is something that if they continue to reveal their identity for the next however so many years with Dref revealing their nature ended up going well Mm -hmm. with Hildred it may not and this could color quite a few things second instance proves the pattern so Gable has not spoken at all and is not going to initiate okay I think Hildred ascends to the top podium and you just feel that anxiety. You you watch her as, as she climbs, you know, a higher set of stairs than, than you would have to. And you just sort of sit and, and watch, waiting for the moment where you two will be able to talk to each other once more. Mm-hmm. And then the fanfare begins. There is a play of the theme of the summer court. Uh, it is a bright and boisterous song from around everywhere, dahlias of all colors rain down, but black dahlias more than any. And someone swoops over carrying a velvet pillow, a plank towards uh, the first place platform where Hildred is standing to receive the golden feather. And you see it for the first time. It looks remarkably different from the feather that you touched a few days ago, from the feather that Jonnet still has in his possession. Most of the feathers I think that you've seen up to this point have been white, but this one is pure gold. Have they messed with it and, like, plated it? I mean, you could make a roll if you wanted to discover that information. No. No? Are you sure? No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you can't tell. The one thing that you do know is... Oh, no, I should. Because what if it's fake? Shit. Okay. Oh, I already know what my knowledge rolls are. It's too green, right? Yep. (laughs) Okay. Hey, you'll be able to level those up. I mean, Uh, let's see if I do. Uh, It would be neat. What would it be... Um, average? Yeah, I'm going to call it average. Uh, I think for any other person, it would be more. But, but it's me. It's yeah, mine. Yeah, it's you, so you might actually be able to figure some things out. Do they only work if they're mine? We don't know. Christ. God damn it. All right. All right, that is two successes and a threat. Two successes and a threat. So you look at it. This is a real feather. I think... It is not one of your feathers, but Mm. you've also never come into contact with anything that wasn't one of yours before. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. um, I think I know what this... Oh, Jesus. Okay, well... One one thing that you notice as it is walking past you, the eyes all swivel and turn to look at you. God, please don't do this to me. I know... Even as they ascend towards the platform, or uh, closer and closer to the first place platform, they barely glance at anything else. They're just making firm eye contact with you the entire time. Hildred grabs the pillow and raises it up to the crowd. Everyone cheers. The roar is deafening. Flowers rain down from all over the ground at the stadium. Now that the feather weave has been cleared away, there are petals that would be shin deep for most people. 
And with that, once again, the theme of the summer court plays as your podiums begin to slowly lower into the ground beneath the stadium itself. Pardon? (laughs) uh, Leading to a tunnel that connects directly to a locker room area. Oh, so we're done. So you're done. Okay. Obviously, one of your opponents, Ratu Ki, is the first to arrive because they had a lower podium than yours. They are there waiting for you when you get out. They look up at you with a stern look. I like to think they have like big, thick, bushy brows. Mm -hmm. They extend a hand uh, for a shake. Uh, Gable shakes. They they shake back, uh, laugh, and say something in a language that I don't think you speak. And then they are on their way down the tunnel. Mm-hmm. You can hear the clanking and cranking of the first place uh, podium getting lowered more and more. As this is happening, you know, you are about to confront the idea of talking to this person. Mm-hmm. It is quiet down here. The dull roar of the crowd is is not as severe. How are you feeling? Very bad. Very, very bad. Because Gable knows that that feather's not theirs, right? That feather is not yours. So it's not that it's not worth it, but it's not what we came here for. It's not tested. It's not tested. We don't know what's going to happen. You don't know what will happen, yeah. It's that thing where when you feel something, such high amounts of anxiety that you feel like your sternum's getting like knotted and anything you say, well, your voice will be shaky because your body's going to fight or flight, which is so silly because it's this giant angel celestial person getting nervous because a person that they like (laughs) may not be happy with them. It's so silly, but that's what it is. I think there's that definitive clunk as the lift that operates this podium has hit the ground and a rolling back of whatever protective cage is there uh, as Hildred steps off. I think the elevator shakes as as her weight leaves it. And she turns to find you, looking like an anxious mess. Hey, are you all right? I'm sorry. She, I think, steps back in surprise. I'm sorry you had to see it. <laughs> hey, look, I don't know what all of that was. I'll admit it. But I also know what that dude did to you. Fuck him. Oh, thank God. Oh, Jesus Christ. I've been sitting here for the past hour and I wanted to leave so bad, but I know I couldn't leave without talking to you. And I knew that you were probably, you might be it, it's super. I, he, Gable, like Gable, exploded. Gable. <sighs> I am sweating so much right now. I need to not be in my performance clothes anymore. Okay. Let's go to the locker room. Okay. You fuckhead. <laughs> <laughs> you go down the hallway. Well, I got to tell you, I have never seen anyone swing through the protections before. I mean, I got pretty close, obviously, and with, with that last hit that I put out. But what was that? I couldn't even begin to tell you. Truly. Wow. So you What really... I will say, their magic is pretty hackable. Like, you think those sorcerers are good? They're not that good. Okay, that's extremely disquieting i mean i don't get hit that often but good to know yeah it's incredibly unsafe but also maybe it's just me and maybe i'm just great fuck you (laughs) (laughs) uh so 
One thing that I asked uh, you before we got on the mics a while ago, but before we recorded the last couple sessions, was I wanted to know what you wanted this relationship to mean to Gable in a larger sense. And the answer that, that you gave is that while it is very nice to have this relationship with Hildred, that perhaps uh, there might be other uh, prospects in other cities, yeah. what have you. So it doesn't need to be a earth-shaking romance that yeah. uh, changes things. And I think it also doesn't make sense for Hildred mm-hmm. because Hildred is so much more of a person who, like, is very like kind and accepting, but also Hildred is tied to the city, and I think Hildred kind of, if we know each other, we know the nature of bird riders and things like that. It's kind of like the Olympics, really. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, Hildred's got to be on this professional athletic circuit, which I imagine has very little overlap with completely outlawed Corsair-friendly territories. Yeah. So that would be kind of a difficult long-distance thing yeah. when you think of it. So knowing that, the the other question that I have for you as Liz the Player is, how important would you like Hildred to be to future stories? I would that... love to see Hildred come back. Okay. Like, that... I would love to have her swashbuckle into random scenes in the future and just mess mess up like a, a current relationship that I'm having. Oh, it's going to be great. Uh, this is very good. This uh-huh. is very good. Well, keeping those desires in mind, uh, that, that can color a little bit of how we want these different scenes to play out. So you approach the locker room and Hildred is keeping very, very casual conversation, technical conversation uh, about your moves. There, there are more than one uh, gentle insults uh, that are headed your way because overall your performance uh, seemed very single-minded and not very competitive competitively focused from Hildred's perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, As soon as you get into the locker room and the door closes, Hildred turns around to face you, staring into your eyes very intensely. I want to fight you some other time. This is a challenge. I'm challenging you. I, no, no, I'll kill you. (laughs) She laughs so loud and for so long that, don't laugh. I just did it. Look, look, I, Tiberius was a very bad guy. Okay. And also, sure, he had some fighting chops. Tiberius is not me. I cannot. Also, awesome. Great. But no, I can't. He'll, I have to, by the way, I have to leave like in 10 minutes. We are leaving the city for like ever. I'm so sorry. About I got that. you. That's, this is important to me. I am going to leave this place and leave this city to go training, and I am going to know that you are out there, and I will have seen what you can do. We can hold back. We can have spells, whatever. I want a real match against you. Gable does not allow themselves to giggle, but they want to so bad. (laughs) They hold out their hand and say, to a rematch. Hildred grabs your hand. And with that, pulls you down until your eyes are level with hers. Can I kiss you? Fuck yes. Fuck you. <laughs> yes. Uh, and I think with that, Hildred launches herself forward. I'm never much for talking, and it seems you're just the same. We share the shore, maybe someday more, be it glance or house or name. 
I will question uh, whether you would like to fade to black. Let's fade to black. <laughs> going to fade back in. I think Hildred like has some clothing or something draped over. We her all shoulder. have some clothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, we there's, all do. Th- this is this is like afterwards. You know, uh, we'll let fan fiction fill yeah, in yeah, all the yeah, details. <laughs> there. Oh shit! That's right. Fuck. What? Hildred dashes across the room back to their things. Everything, I think, was kind of strewn about carelessly and is in big piles. Mm -hmm. And she grabs the pillow with the golden feather on it. And she moves over to you and places her hand on the feather and pushes it over to you. It looks a lot different. The quality of the eyes on that feather and the eyes of all angel feathers, really, they do sort of look like irises on humans or animals. But if you're up close to them, you can see that those iris patterns aren't normal eye patterns. They're flames. That makes the intensity of the stare all that much more. Gosh, I'm so upset because I think I know what's going to happen, but Gable has no idea. And I want to tell my friend... (laughs) (laughs) Liz wants to tell their friend. Um, From what people have told me, this looks very weird from the outside. So you can't freak out. I think we both know I've seen enough. You're disgusting. Stop it. And Gable reaches out their hand, sends the middle finger, and touches just the quill. And even that is enough. There is a bright flash of light. Now, you, Liz, the player, get a memory, one of Gable's memories, and that is one that you can choose. Yes. Even though it's not... Even though it's not yours. Okay. You go first, then. What my idea might be colored by what you're offering. If if we're going to just go to that, uh, then the light in the room slowly restores as you feel that another part has been put back into place. This is not a part of yourself, but in many ways it doesn't matter. Your body still knows how to use this, still knows where it goes, and it fits back onto your wings just as easily as any other feather would. And then you look into Hildred's eyes, and I have to pull a luminary. No, you don't. You don't need to. You don't need to. I mean, I know what I would do if it wasn't a luminary pull. And I pull the soldiers. There was part of me that wanted to whittle this down to a three-card Monty of the cards that I wanted, but this is also good. Was that one of the cards that you would have... Uh, no, I would have picked something even more fucking loaded than this one. Something nastier. <laughs> but the, yeah, this one will do just fine. Uh, uh, my stomach hurts. Death, deception, and memory. Uh. In so many ways, though, the card that I pulled is more perfect than any one that I could have foreseen. Ain't that always the way, though? Hildred, just a second ago, was looking at you with eyes still full of hunger. Full of so many different kinds of hunger. 
one of admiration from a competitor to fellow competitor. She has seen your strength. She knows what you are capable of, and she wants to test her mettle against you. Eyes of infatuation. She has quite recently been intimate with you Mm -hmm. in a way that pleased her very much. She regrets the brevity of that interaction and wants more. She also was curious. She wants to know more about you, about what makes you work. She's been presented with a literal walking and talking miracle. There's no human on this planet that wouldn't jump at the opportunity to know more about that. Now, there is fear in those eyes. I think a familiar fear. Gable has been around for 200 years, and as you've said, has revealed themselves to other people in the past. And you've seen this fear on people's faces before, but never from someone who had previously accepted you. What does that feel like? That feels awful. What happened? Is that what Gable says? Yeah. What's wrong? (laughs) It was you! What? She's trying to find words. Her mouth is quivering. She pulls back and finds that the feather that she was holding in her hand is no longer there. It has completely disappeared. What? What do you mean? She's shaking her head. She's looking around, frightened. She... she... What do you mean? What do you mean it was me? (laughs) What are you? What are you talking about? I, I, I saw it. I, I saw. What did I, you see? I know what you did. I know why you're here. What did I do? I don't remember. I don't remember anything. What did I do? I feel so many things right now. <laughs> she looks at you again, and the fear has melted away, and there is a sadness there. A difficult sadness. It's this look that you would see in somebody's eyes if you had just broken up with them, if you had just broken their heart. What did I... I didn't do anything. I can assure you that you did. Even if you don't remember. I... I don't know what happened. You seem nice now. Maybe it's different. I I can't. It, it wasn't me. There are thousands of us. Gable. We're foot soldiers. It wasn't one person. It, you can't blame me. I didn't do it. Gable, you're no foot soldier. I have to be. I don't know how to even comprehend what I just saw. I, I, I don't. So much of it doesn't make sense, but I know it was you. And I... (laughs) What did you see? I can't explain it to you right now. I I, I can't. Try. I'm I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Tell me what you saw. There are tears running down her face as she is hastily putting on clothing. I I can't right now. I can't right now. Someday. Please. She slams her fist on one of the lockers, denting it, and she turns towards you. 
I will find you. When I have the words, I will tell no one else. I don't know what the fuck that was, okay? I don't know what the fuck that was. But I feel like I know you a little bit. Gable is putting on their clothes and putting, like, wiping tears away and putting on a coat because this is a huge betrayal. Whatever has just happened, they feel just awful and angry. And Gable, after, after gathering everything up, whips around, I don't care what you do. You know what? When you find the words, tell everyone. Everything in Hildred wells up in that moment. Hildred is a person who has faced death and fates worse than death many times in her life. But for all of her courage and all of her dauntless will, this is somehow the hardest thing she's ever done. She gathers everything she has and she shouts Gable's secret fear. The doubt that teases at their nightmares. The dark possibility that has been Gable's companion for 200 years that flares up when the wounds on their shoulders ache. It surrounds them and echoes cruelly against the walls of the locker room. I didn't! Did I? She just nods. Slowly. I didn't. So I looked for another luminary to see how Hildred would react to the truth being in the open. The boat. Opportunity. Freedom and labor. Fortune awaits those who seek it, but only with blood and sweat. Hildred cautiously approaches Gable and reaches out a hand to place on them. A gentle hand. There are tears streaming down her face as she tries to get your attention. Gable turns away. Hildred takes a step forward and places a firm hand on your shoulder. Stop. Look, I did a lot of shit, too. I did a lot of shit before I became this person. The people that I used to fly with, they're all dead. Fucking feathers cut them down. And I lived instead. I have to live with that every fucking day of my life. Every competition, every time I get to be in the sky and free, I sold myself to the feathers to live. I can never forget that. But I'm not bound to that shit either. I don't know what I saw. I know that I saw you. And I know that I saw something happen. Don't do it like this. Whatever this is, don't do it like this. Do what? Don't run away from who you are now. And she hugs you from behind. Her arms are strong and her hug is firm. You are a good person. You saved so many people. It can't be. Fuck. Fuck. Fuck, you have to go. I... Hildred is looking over the wall at a cock. She walks around to your front and places two hands on your cheeks. You have to go. Yeah, yeah. You have to stay safe and you have to live because I am going to fucking find you, okay? I... They're gonna... Everyone... 
No, no, no. John, no, no. hey, hey, he's hey. gonna die. No, 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 no. I can't. You can do something about it. Whatever the fuck it is, you can do something about it. They're, they're gonna come for me. I did it. I did it. Hey, they haven't found you. They haven't found you. It's been however many fucking years. What did I do? Fuck, what did I do? She grabs a hand and squeezes it. You have to run. That's what I would do. You have to run right now. Okay. I got it. She kisses you softly on the lips to stay them. I think it lasts until you exhale. I have to go. She nods. Stay safe. You too. And you part ways. Doofa. And we'll explore that later. As finally, we see Oromar Vale seated in the broker's seat in his office with a new table sat in front of him, a table that the broker brings out only for one-on-one negotiations. It is, of course, a skull. Great. It is an ivory skull, true ivory, bones of animals, intricately laid together uh, from different beasts to perfectly form this human skull shape. Oromar Vale sits there in his red coat that has been worn by years of sun and wind and battle and his brilliant white bird on his shoulder. Argus Westfield opens the door to the broker's office, flanked by nervous-looking red feather soldiers. Westfield takes a look around the room at the various spooky butlers that flank Oromar Vale, the skull-shaped accoutrement at the macabre art that the broker strategically places out for negotiations such as this, at the generous platter of snacks and drinks provided to everyone who enters a negotiation with the broker, and at the seat that has been prepared just for him. He moves forward and sits down across from Oromar Vale. There is a thing that Argus Westfield does, has done throughout his career. A piercing look that he gives every man, woman, and person that does not ascribe to any gender, that cuts them to their very core, that finds the thing inside that makes them squirm or fear or falter. He looks into Oromar Vale and he finds none. He's only seen this look before on people that he has recently killed as the life fades from their eyes. In every living person, there is some kind of flaw, but of course not in Oromar Vale. For the first time in his very long career, Argus Westfield feels as though he is at a disadvantage. He uncomfortably adjusts himself in his seat. Oromar Vale. Shall we begin?
nod. Ormar slowly nods. Can I... Am I able to think commands? You can try. Okay. <laughs> I would like to try. You can try. All right. Uh, make a divine check. Jeez. Oh, I'll tell you right now that ain't going to happen. Um, divine. Upgrade it three times because Dref's heart is inside you. Okay. So it's two green. So that would be two yellow and one green. Yep. What's and this will be hard. Okay, that's three. That's three purple. That is one success and one advantage. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. You can think commands. Okay, then I take it back. And I think nod. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oromar nods slowly. Nice. Uh, and I think that we sort of set up the old notes and pockets. No. Oh, wow. Not again. Uh. But Are you telling me that Travis, like, did labor to write letters? Yeah. Every conceivable outcome. Here. I don't think that there are that many. And I don't think you tried too hard. <laughs> But I think I think what we'll what we'll rely more on is um, it'll look pretty cool when during the negotiation his bird oh, reaches fuck, Johnny, for the right. Letters. I think I actually figured wow. it out. Okay, I think Travis focuses himself mm-hmm. and thinks for Oromar Vale to take a letter out of his jacket pocket and slide it across the skull table. Okay. We can see an above shot of this, uh, the letter, which is in black paper with a crimson wax seal on it, slides slowly across the table. Or Marvales withdraws his finger as Argus Westfield pulls it towards him and opens it up. Uh, he unfolds it and then looks incredulously at Oromar Vale. <laughs> you can't expect to talk to the Red Feather Syndicate in such a manner. You must realize your position. Even with your spells and your tricks, we have the most ships in the sky. If I wanted, I could rain down hell upon this place. I could open it up for the mariner's dark predations. I could do anything I wish. I could blockade you for months and starve out every soul in this city. And he looks once again to Oromar's face for any faltering, any small shake of will. And he finds none. There is no quarter for him in those cold, dead eyes. Westfield sighs and places the letter down on the table. (sighs) The terms of this request, are they the same as the terms laid out when you burned the souls away from my men? Or Marvale nods once more. 
Westfield looks around the room once again at the broker's possessions, at the things that have been strategically laid out for this meeting, the artifacts, the relics that this small man possesses, the dark things that he chooses to decorate his room with, the very table at which this negotiation is taking place. Very well. We will withdraw. We will reduce our presence in this city. We will allow the pirates that you choose to lay with to continue to find port here. And we will respect your blockades. With that, he stands up, signals to his men that the negotiation is over, and walks out of the room. The camera turns slowly back to Oromar Vale, and we can see on the table in front of him the message that Travis wrote for the Red Feather Syndicate. Two words. Get out. And I think that's it, folks. Get out of my city. Pretty good. Hell yeah. Health to the strangers who've ever been kind. And once for our friends ne'er to rise. Twice to the dearest we're leaving behind. Who know we can never deny the call of the sky. Stars fade to nothing, the sun starts its turn We know there's adventures and stories to earn So we part from this table where hearts ever burn As we leave with one promise, a hasty return dwindles an echoed refrain to those who won't weather the wind and the rain though our number may lessen our memories remain as once more we'll gather to speak every lost name health to the strangers who've ever been kind and once for our friends ne'er to rise twice to the dearest we're leaving behind who know we can Never deny the call of the sky to the strangers who've ever been kind, and once for our friends ne'er to rise. Twice to the dearest we're leaving behind, who know we can never deny 
the call of the sky. Well, heroes, that's it. That was Bujaneeth. We managed to make it through. I think this is the most fun that I've had role playing. Just this whole arc. I enjoyed it start to finish. I loved all of the moves that our players made. Even when we were dealing with in ideal circumstances, I, I think we pulled through and reacted to changes that happened, you know, in our lives uh, that affected the story that we were telling in ways that made everything feel still really strong and cohesive. Uh, so there's frankly a lot that I loved about all of this. And hopefully this conversation that I'm having here with you is not going to be the last that I get to talk about it because I'd really love to unpack uh, some of the things that, you know, the, the players thought about it. In this, as we talk about director's notes, like I just want to pull some interesting little tidbits. Uh, one, because I know not everybody has access to my Twitter uh, that, that I wanted to talk about, is the broker, who you know I think very plainly is my favorite NPC of this arc. I really enjoyed playing him, them. I haven't really landed on where the broker's pronouns are and I, I don't think the character has either but the broker is is kind of an interesting character because he predates a campaign um he, he predates his his participation in campaign he was originally sort of a neo scum character I played the broker uh in the shadow run game that Ganon Reedy was running for his friends uh, that eventually turned into Neo Scum. I'm pretty sure Blair was there. I, I definitely know Mike was there and, and there was a large group of other people. I got invited to play Shadowrun for the first time in ages. It was my first time playing Shadowrun 5th edition. Um, I, I came up in Shadowrun in 4th edition and we went to this apartment where there was no air conditioning and we played shadow run in a party that must have been seven people large it was just like an enormous party uh which in shadow run means the game took so long and it was so hot i was drenched in sweat by the end of the game but i truly love shadow run uh the the broken little mess that it is and it was so much fun playing that game uh, especially opposite mike because mike was playing dak rambo at that time which is is just wild to think about so the broker in the shadow run universe was a runner named corvid who was brought up in an assassin's school and like was trained to have like kind of an animalistic style to his assassination um and he chose uh a raven for that style or not a raven a crow uh because i had actually based the character on actor comedian zach woods who you might know from the office where he played gabe or uh from silicon valley where he plays jared and his portrayal uh, of Jared in Silicon Valley is really the root of what inspired the broker and the broker's characterization. I liked that he was this low status character on Silicon Valley, but he was hyper competent and really worthy of people's respect. And also like 
genuinely kind. But what, what I liked about it is like the world and everybody around him just seemed to want to dunk on him. And I would watch that show and I just loved that character. And I couldn't understand how everybody around him didn't just love him. So in Corvid, I tried to make a character that like from on the surface level seems like they would fit into a Shadowrun universe, you know, being a assassin character who was trained in an assassin school for like a super long time to do sneaky assassin things and because i was playing Shadowrun, all of his skills were wildly min maxed to make him devastatingly competent uh and and dangerous but i kind of wanted to make his personality no matter how affable he was uh no matter how accommodating he would be of of the people around him i wanted to make him off-putting so the things about him where he tried to accommodate you or tried to relate to you would just be off in a way that would make you like dislike him so he is notably like somebody who was in Dak Rambo's party who would agree with Dak Rambo and, and talk to Dak Rambo and be excited to be around Dak Rambo that Dak couldn't stand. And it was so much fun to be that guy and, and, and see where that lever was. And when we had to have the broker, uh, a character in the city who would wield like tremendous civic and, and fiscal power uh, and, you know, really be like a very dangerous person in a very dangerous city uh, running the criminal underground. Like there is the temptation to make that person you know, a stereotypical mastermind that, that you see in a lot of different stories where you know, everything uh, they're saying is dripping with danger. They sound the way you think Machiavelli should have sounded. And like there's kind of a classic uh, masculinity uh, that, that comes to that role where everything about them is high status. Uh, and, and faced with that and, you know, the fact that campaign is a comedy show even with all of these like moments of high drama that that we're doing like it, it's still fun to be funny i didn't want the broker to be that thing um i i like i didn't want to indulge that masculinity so i returned to this idea of corvid this this character who you know was hyper competent but always held low status and I was like, what would that look like if the most dangerous person in one of the most dangerous cities is always low status, no matter what's happening? And he's low status because he takes low status. <laughs> Even if everything about the situation says he's high status, he will find a way to take low status in the situation. And, you know, it also like helped me do things like veer away from, you know, threats of torture so much. Like we, we definitely ran into a little bit of that with the person from the Liquid Swords Monastery. But uh, the broker's first, you know, thing that he said in that situation is, are you comfortable? 
because there is a part of him that wants to accommodate this person and make them comfortable. And the way he laid out his interrogation is these are the options that you have and uh, you can choose from them as you like. Uh, I just, there, there's something that appeals to me about that. It both plays into tropes and plays against tropes. Um, now, I, I saw a lot of people point out uh, what they saw in the broker as similarities to Vetinari from Discworld. And I am a huge fan of Vetinari. He is most certainly one of my favorite characters. And kind of ironically and, and, and coincidentally, the broker's own character journey mimics Vetinari's because he goes from being an assassin to being someone who holds tremendous civic power in a city. Uh, in And also like kind of a weird semi-lawless city uh, that is also based in a comedy universe. So like the correlations between Bouge and Neath, which... I kind of see as like a mix between Prague and New Orleans. Uh, like it, it felt very Ankh-Morpork pork in, in a way. So it, it, it was it, like, the, the, I definitely see those similarities. Like I have many characters that I have put as NPCs in my world that have been straight up homages or, or pale carbon copies of Vetinari and, I, I'm sure I will have many more because I dearly, dearly love Vetinari. Uh, but despite like who I am, the broker actually wasn't a Vetinari figure. Uh, that uh, or, or like, or I didn't intend him to be a Vetinari figure when I decided to put him or them in Skyjacks. Before we move on from the broker, I do want to point out one more thing. You see, when they were Corvid. They wore spooky bird-esque costumes. It was a skin-tight bodysuit with a plume of crow feathers around their neck and chest, which I, I think I've kind of described the broker is wearing before. Each one of those feathers was supposed to represent a successful job that, the, that Corvid had done. So it was kind of the essence of the character. They're hyper competent, evidently, from you know the ornaments that they've they've given themselves. But that competence makes them look completely ridiculous in a way that they are not at all self-aware of. Or if they are self-aware, they've just accepted it. They've accepted that to other people that is ridiculous, but it doesn't it doesn't really matter for them. So that's the broker, uh, and that's like kind of a neat behind-the-scene note for that. Uh, so the next thing that I kind of wanted to talk about is Dref and JPC's departure from the show, and when we actually knew all of that was happening. Uh, the Bujanith arc was supposed to be a really big uh, Dref arc. Um, I had kind of set up from the beginning that uh, Dref's brother was going to appear in this city and there would be kind of like a cat and mouse game where we sort of tease out that bit of Dref's past. Um, I was also intending it to be a pretty big Jonnet arc because I knew we were going to encounter the Liquid Swords Monastery in the city. Uh, 
and I kind of wanted to, you know, tilt uh, Jonathan in that direction and maybe uh, provide a group of people that could provide some answers to questions that Jonathan was starting to grapple with. Um, and the reason that I wanted to discuss JPC's departure and discuss it in terms of the story that we're telling is because we did not know for certain that JPC would be leaving the show until, like, I think either the night before or a couple days before the final recording that we had with him. And it was because JPC was getting this new job or or was, you know, considering the offer for this new job. And there was a chance that he might be able to stick around, uh, but like it was it was a slim chance. And he would require something like to take a extended leave from the show, which would make it very, very difficult to tell a story. So, you know, there was a chance that either Dref was going to die and JPC would depart from the show or that Dref was going to get kidnapped and simply not be on the show for a long time. So we like a lot of those decisions got made extremely last minute and we really didn't know what the shape of that final scene would be. Uh, which I just think is interesting. Like uh, when you consider it in Dref's holistic arc and like what we kind of wanted to do with him and we what we ended up being able to do with him, looking back, I, I think it tied up pretty neatly and the way that death impacted the story, I, I, I think came out really beautifully. Um, it underscored a lot of the action that happened. And, you know, it made Tiberius like a pretty compelling villain. I still, you know, definitely would have preferred that JPC, you know, still be able to be a part of the show because I, I love playing with him. I love his ideas. He's, he's such a talented storyteller and actor. You know, he, he would dive into those circumstances. And I think his portrayal of Dref is so smart and and so sensitive like i was a little nervous uh with the idea that jpc wanted to play a character who was a coward uh and a necromancer uh who also had a stutter um like any sort of disability imposed on a character who surface level seems like they could be evil or you know a joke in in some way like especially because the show is a comedy show that that could have broken bad uh very quickly but the way jpc portrayed that character i i think really leaned away from those stereotypes and i love dref as a character i, I love the idea of a necromancer who does it for medical science who, who does it to make people's lives better you know even if he has this kind of macabre uh, academic obsession, he does it in a way that's really virtuous and good and, and makes him identifiable. Um, there was so much that was cool about Dref. And I would just love to, I would have loved to have seen that play out as a truly heroic character arc. Um, and it's a shame that we didn't get that. But the story that we have now is also extremely good. Um, I, I've made this clear like at Gen Con last year. I don't 
like character death uh, in my role-playing games if I can avoid it. I especially don't like mechanically mandated character death um, because I frankly just like the players at the table to have control over that. But I am proud of how this turned out. I, I really like that everybody at the table was game to let it impact them uh, and that that you really felt the story shocks of that character exiting the narrative from everyone around them. And it changed the, the course of, of how everything was going. And I, I think it's going to have lasting effects into other arcs as well, uh, which just to me feels like a very genuine portrayal. Now, I do kind of want to spend a bunch of time individually praising everybody and their performance in this arc. Uh, I, I think Liz hit so many wonderful high notes. Uh, Tyler is playing Jonnet like perfectly. I, I could not ask for a more enthusiastic character to play someone who has big protagonist energy. And Johnny flawlessly and frustratingly is playing a character who is so incredibly cool. Um, and even in his flaws, even in his ridiculous moments, uh, he does cool things and says cool things. And it's just, it is wild to watch somebody that you have played with for so long uh, do something that he kind of struggled with uh, on the Star Wars campaign. Uh Johnny tried to play cool a couple times. Like, Lenick was kind of cool, uh, the, the first portrayal of Lenick. If you go back to the one-shot episodes, and if you go back even farther to the episodes that are on the Secret Archive, the, 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 the lost episodes of Campaign, uh, where we had to re-record them because we thought that the file was irreparably corrupted, and then I did a ton of work and managed to salvage it. Uh, too late to use on the show, but you know, showed you an interesting alternate universe where JPC was playing a Gamoran. Um, Lenik was cool and did cool stuff and was like effortlessly cool, and then very very quickly into our narrative became Lenik, who was not cool and that was also kind of cool and then you know johnny played uh nemo who had some legitimately cool moments i i think especially in the peppered top arc and then kind of had to back off of that very quickly uh and it was, it was kind of or didn't back off of it but like johnny couldn't hold the center on it um but seeing him play travis he's doing it so well like when, when i picture travis in my mind it's like a a giant cat lounging on a chaise lounge being fed grapes he's just he's fantastic and terrible i guess this kind of is veering into me individually praising everyone so let's talk about tyler the way tyler makes choices for Jonnet always surprises me um tyler uh, this is a kind of peek behind the curtain that someday you will be able to see, but but not right now. We we did a session zero, and Tyler was originally not going to play Jonnet. He was going to play like a fifty-year-old wizard who kind of had a similar story to Jonnet's. Uh, and so when when Tyler came to the table on the first episode of campaign, he had a brand new character that he had emailed me about like the night before or or a couple nights before. It, it was very soon. It's like, hey, what we discussed is not what's happening. And this is a totally different thing. 
And so I didn't know what to make of that at first, but it turned out uh, Jonnet is really great. Um, and Tyler has brought like those surprise bombshell moments to me as a player time and time again. And I, I think it nothing like is more emblematic of it than his confrontation with the Mariner and his decision to burn Hip's name. I was not expecting anything like that at all. And like you can hear uh, maybe a little bit of panic in my voice as Tyler briefly decides that maybe he's going to sacrifice part of his future or some of the certainty attached to his future, which uh, uh, for me as the game master, that is a big thing that I am kind of depending on for his larger story arc. Like, I love the idea that this character has a destiny, um, that, you know, this this little kid from Acheron just happened upon an angel feather. And because of that, he's got, he's going to do something incredibly important. And, you know, pe- peeling back sort of how I think of the character, because he's Jonnet, that important thing that he's going to do is going to be really good. Um. That's tremendously important to me. So seeing that kind of in the crosshairs, uh, my life passed before my eyes. Um, and I was still shocked that that he opted to burn Hip. Like thinking about Hip and like the few glimpses that we've gotten into who Hip might have been and, and what he meant to Jonnet, like it felt so major to me. I, I couldn't believe it was happening. Um, like I, I, I don't know it. I feel like I didn't give it enough upgrades to his dice for what that could mean to the character and and the unfolding story. Like, oh my gosh! Like <laughs> this may not be canon, but there's part of me that thinks if Jonnet had sacrificed his future he would have just killed the mariner outright in the moment with that spell that's how important i think uh Jonnet kind of is but uh because tyler can make buck wild decisions like that uh and knows how to play to this character like so well in ways that i as the gm cannot possibly anticipate I guess we'll find out what will actually happen because uh, I know the direction Tyler will take the story will probably shock me, but in a good way, in the best way. Folks, now we got to talk about Liz Anderson, dynamite performer Liz Anderson. There's so many individual scenes with Liz uh, that I loved in this arc. I Really, all of the Gable Hildred stuff was so much fun to record and listening back to it like every scene with with Liz and Gable or every scene with with Liz playing opposite my Hildred like is kind of an intense experience and Gable got rocked this arc they went on an intense emotional journey in an arc that really they were supposed to be kind of taking a back seat because, uh, you know, the, the civility fight, like we learn big things about Gable and, and we wanted to focus on other characters for this arc. Still, Gable shines through and, and Gable shines through because of the moments that Liz made for them. Uh, 
you know, healing that hospital, like that is a thing that makes me cry uh, because of, you know, things that I went through this year. Um, but it makes me cry because it's a beautiful thing. Uh, it is a moment that I really enjoyed imagining. I enjoyed thinking through the full consequences of healing that hospital. Like all of those people getting to go back to their families. I think there's something just so joyous and just so perfect about that. And I think it says something very deep about that character that I am excited to explore. You know, I also like, like that that's the mystical side of Gable, but, but, Liz is so good at bringing out that that human side that that makes it clear that that Gable, despite being immortal, despite being seven feet tall and able to wield a gigantic flaming sword, Gable is a human being, and you can see that in the vulnerability for that character. Liz putting up uh, the barrier, like me, you know, Hildred. <laughs> flirting with Gable and hitting on Gable was really just supposed to have like a minor kind of uh, undertone intention to what I thought was going to be a fun sporting event that would show up later. Uh, Liz being like, I don't know that the character has a sense of self enough to be comfortable with somebody coming on to them was an incredible choice. And then moving forward to get to play out a romance of this character really kind of discovering themselves and being accepted in important ways and, and having that challenged uh, throughout all of it. I think Liz's performance in the character shines through so much and all of the decisions that she made are so smart and add volumes to the overall story. So there's a lot more, obviously, that I want to talk about in all this, and I would love to do a stream sometime where, where we get to deep dive and, and we got to get uh, performer perspectives and whatnot, but there is one more thing that I want to talk about, and it is the way this arc ended, because there's something that I don't like about it. You see, we built up these big moments for Jonnet and Gable. Like Gable was in the joust and was going to, you know, fight that final confrontation with Tiberius. Uh, Jonnet was literally learning was learning about himself at the same time he was literally fighting the Mariner. Um, and Travis and Johnny were supposed to have this cool negotiation where they were negotiating against the Red Feather Syndicate and against somebody who's very influential in the Red Feather Syndicate. And, you know, it would be kind of a lot of bluff from Travis, which Travis is so good at. And the recording that we did this was the last possible recording date that we could have had. Um, my mother, as, as some of you know, passed away this year, and uh, some of the recordings that we were going to do had to get pushed back because I was at home with, with her. Um, and so we had to push back to the absolute final date that we had. And there was so much that needed to be resolved in this plot, and, and we couldn't fully resolve everything. We... But by the 
end of the recording, we are close to midnight or just passing midnight. And everybody is tired. You know, Tyler had just had work earlier that day. Johnny has a day job. So so Johnny specifically needed to get up at a reasonable hour the next day. Um, so I was getting real nervous about what we were going to do. And not only that, really pulling back that curtain, I was feeling a little ill. So I needed to leave the table uh, to go be ill because like I was, I was leaving on, on uh, my trips the next day. Uh, and some of you know, I was disastrously sick on those trips. Um, so we were at the situation where everybody is dead tired and we still have this major character thing to resolve so that, everybody can essentially go rest and because of that i narrated the conclusion to that negotiation scene without the negotiation scene actually happening and i feel really bad about that and johnny and i tried to reconnect uh together alone at some point afterwards but with all of my travel and everything that we were trying to do we just couldn't make our schedules line up uh so i was originally just going to replace that narration with an actual negotiation and i didn't get the opportunity to do it and you know now that you're listening to this episode and it has been released to you um i so very much understand why George Lucas released the special editions of Star Wars because this isn't exactly how I wanted things to go down. I hate taking that sort of agency away from a player and just moving things forward, but that's what circumstances called for and that's what we had to do. Uh, so if it strikes you as weird that you didn't actually get to hear this negotiation that we were building up to, it's because frankly, uh, timing didn't work out for it and we just had to do what we did, which might not be perfect, but I I think it's also okay because I'm fairly certain Johnny would have crushed that negotiation. And besides, we can always look forward to the next arc to highlight Travis even more. So uh, with that, I hope to, you know, have a different and more in-depth form of this conversation at a later date. I hope you enjoyed this peek behind the scenes in, in lieu of your standard Dear Uhuru. And I hope you enjoy the upcoming Christmas bonus featurette that you're going to be getting from us. And I sincerely hope you enjoy Courier's Call after that. And I can't wait to see everybody come back for the main campaign uh, on January, I want to say 18th. And I'm going to make you listen to me in real time. Look up the exact date. So it's right. No, normal campaign returns a normal campaign. Uh, main campaign Skyjacks will return on January 22nd uh, if everything goes according to plan and it absolutely should or I will be quite cross. So yeah, January 22nd, look forward to that. It's going to be good. We haven't recorded anything for it yet, which I'm a little nervous about because we have been extremely ahead on this show uh, for a long time. 
but it's going to be returning with bottle episodes so we can uh, even more thoroughly emotionally debrief from this arc and and get to see these characters uh, just interact in a more chill way. Anyway, with all of that, thanks, heroes. And remember, there are no kings. Take flight. Campaign Skyjacks is a one-shot network production. For more information, be sure to follow us on Twitter at at CampaignPod for updates about live shows and other events we might be doing. The history of role-playing games is weird and wild, and we here at System Mastery are determined to look through it all. Every heartbreaker that drove a man to bankruptcy to see his vision of D&D with really specific armor maintenance rules come to fruition. Every game where you get increasingly certain as you read it that this is all just one person's weird fetish. Every system that painstakingly recreates how many a life was really like and then also you can cast fireball the system mastery podcast wallows in the filth of rpg history come join us in the muck at system mastery you can find more great gaming shows over at oneshotpodcast.com Jonet kessler was played by tyler davis who can be found on twitter at tyler a dave on main stage with second city or at io with devil's daughter gable was played by liz anderson who can be found on twitter at liz anderson underscore 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 or on her podcast, Paired. Travis Matago was played by Johnny O'Mara, who can be found on Twitter at Johnny and Briefs, or on his podcast, Dilettante Ball. I am James D'Amato, your host and game master. You can find me on Twitter at OneShotRPG, or on my other podcast, OneShot. The original music featured in this production was composed and performed by Arnie Parrott. You can find Arnie on Twitter at A-R-N-E, P-A-R-R-O-T-T. And you can find more of his work at atptunes.com. This episode was edited by Casey Tony, who can be found on Twitter at Casey Pony, spelled C-A-S-E-Y-P-O-N-E-Y, or on his own podcast, Neoscum. Our logo was designed by Fiona Shea, who can be found on Twitter at Fiona Pup. The World of Sphere was inspired in part by the music of the Decemberists and the card game Illimat, property of Together Studios. The role-playing game used for this production is a modified version of the Genesis role-playing system published by Fantasy Flight Games. There are no kings. Take flight, heroes. Health to the strangers who've ever been kind And once for our friends ne'er rise Twice to the dearest we're leaving behind Who know we can never deny The call of the sky